0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festival's globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank
1: you. (laughs) But I think the warmth of that welcome tells you a great deal. Um, I'd like to ask you first about the title of the book, Parallels and Paradoxes. Parallels between the two of you? Paradoxes about where you both come from?
0: Well, I, I think uh, the, the idea was that we were a pretty unlikely pair, uh, and our meeting was extremely um, coincidental. We met in a London hotel about 10 years ago, and we became fast friends almost immediately. Um, of course, I was terribly interested in music and always have been, and I followed. Uh, Baron performances as a conductor and as a pianist for, me- for many years, you know, at a distance in the audience. And he was somebody, um, he, he was an Israeli, and also very interested in uh, the Palestinian question, as, as few Israelis uh, of his stature were. And he, he's a man of great um, provocation. Uh, he had just written, when I met him, I had read a book that he had written, a sort of autobiography, in which he's very critical of Israel, uh, particularly the Israel after 1967, which uh, he felt really produced for the first time uh, a, a condition of occupation by which the Jews of Israel were ruling in other people. Uh, and he was, he was deeply upset about that. But at the same time, ah, More important is he didn't know very much about it, and he's a man of great uh, willingness to explore, especially explore on the other side. So the parallels are that friends um, interested in similar things, and the paradoxes are those that derive from differences between us, where we are always crossing over into territory that isn't ours. He, uh, for example, just to give it a very uh, precise and quite dramatic concreteness, is the only major Israeli, and as far as I can tell, Jewish artist to have played in Palestine, and occupied Palestine. Once in 1999, in January of 1999, I arranged for him a recital at Birzeit University uh, to an audience, basically, of faculty, students, and uh, people from the city, uh, Ramallah, nearby. And it was a a very moving occasion. He he made a little speech, I made a little speech, there was an encore he played with a young Palestinian pianist, but it was his way of saying, I want to come into your territory, and I want to experience what it's like to be the other, Uh, which is a very unusual thing. Uh, Zubin Mehta was was a great close friend of his, and he had never well, I mean, this may strike you as shocking, but he never had ever been amongst Arabs, although he's conducted the, uh, the Israel Philharmonic for 30 years. It was a, you know, quite a remarkable experience. And for him, coming to Palestine, he became an Indian again. And for him, the Israelis became the British. Uh, so it was quite a transforming experience for him. <laughs> and, then, um, and then the other time he did it, uh, Barenboim did it, was last uh, September. He, uh, he had tried in March to go and play again in Ramallah, uh, but was turned back by the Israeli army, and then the second time, in September, he did, and he played to an audience at a school. Um, that kind of thing, I think, implies a type of gesture he, he thinks is terribly important, a symbolic gesture, that can only be done, I think, in the end, by an artist using art
1: rather than you know, um, verbal means. This is a distinction that you make throughout your conversations, particularly Baron Boyne, but it's one that, that you too um, comment on, which is the difference between the politician engaged professionally in the business of politics and the artist who nonetheless has a kind of political engagement, but is an artist primary. Perhaps you could just explore what you see as being the fundamental differences between those two, the politician and the artist. Well,
0: I think in, in a st- paradoxical way, I think it's terribly important to keep them apart. Um, I mean, there are, for example, composers uh, we know historically who have, well, I mean, Beethoven himself was very interested in uh, in using music to c- either celebrate or in some way represent political events. I mean, Fidelio being one, the Ninth Symphony being another. <coughs> uh, and, of course, in our own time, in the 20th century and then in the 21st century, there are, there are composers, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, uh, and, and American composers for whom music has been a form of political expression. Uh, Frederick Ruschewski, for instance, but what is, I think, much more interesting to me are musicians um, who, for whom music remains the political, uh, remains the, the aesthetic uh, very much. And by virtue of its context and its placing can acquire a kind of political significance. And I think that's what uh, Baron Boring was able to do, and w- one can see it in other places as well. But uh, speaking about Baronborg, we might as well show that when he played in Ramallah, what I was worried about, for example, was that it might be a program, a sort of not, not exactly a condescending program, but a less formidable program than he might say play in, in Tel Aviv for a more sophisticated audience. But no, he played, in fact, a rather demanding program of Chopin, Beethoven, and and, and Liszt uh, with the idea that the integrity of the aesthetic performance could play a kind of indirect political role by virtue of its representation in a highly politicized and deeply antagonistic situation between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, And So I think that's, that's one way of doing it. The other thing is that what we do together is every summer uh, beginning in 1999, we conduct a workshop. Uh, it began in Weimar.
1: I, Weimar, presumably, was a significant place to actually have this experiment. Perhaps we could start with that. Yes,
0: absolutely. Weimar, well, there were two reasons for it. One was that in 1999, Weimar, which was in Eastern Germany, as you know, uh, was made cultural capital of Europe. And they approached uh, Baron boym with some idea about doing a concert. And I happened to be in Berlin at the same time, as was Yo-Yo Ma. And the idea of doing a concert didn't seem to anyone as particularly interesting. I mean, there are plenty of concerts around. But the other thing about Weimar, which I was very interested in and was talking to Daniel about, is, of course, that it was a city of Goethe, the great city of German culture. I mean, Schiller lived there, Beethoven lived there, Liszt lived there, Wagner lived there. I mean, Bach worked there for... And Benio's, for, uh, after all. Christians. Yes, exactly, came, came and visited Liszt there and so on. So it, it, it's, it's an extraordinary place. Uh, but the, the special thing about Weimar, from our point of view, being he an Israeli, I a Palestinian, he an Israeli who came to Israel, it should be said, in 1950, a year after my family left what was then Palestine, I mean, so the paradox and the parallels are beginning to multiply here. Uh, The interest of Weimar was that Goethe lived there, and it was in Weimar that Goethe became interested in Islam. Um, uh, A soldier in uh, in the campaigns in Spain had brought him a, a page of the Quran, and he began to learn Arabic, but was quickly diverted and became more interested in Persian, and especially in the poet Hafiz. And it was under the influence of Hafiz that he wrote what I think is probably his greatest poem after, Stra- after Faust, and that is the east west uh, the West-West-Ostlicher Divan, a collection of poems about love, very much influenced by Persian poetry, which also was a poetry of self-renewal for him. He fell in love with a younger woman, and such an extraordinary collection. All of that struck us. Well, why not then ask the Weimar authorities to allow us to bring together Students from the West, uh, the East, to the West, namely musicians from the Arab countries and musicians from, uh, from Israel. The idea would be that they are young people. We didn't want anybody too young, although a grandnephew of mine, who is a prodigy, was brought at the age of 10 uh, <laughs> and, and a pianist of phenomenal gifts. And it, w- it, was, it was wonderful for me because his grandfather was my first cousin and very, very close to me. And his grandfather was well known to have the most unmusical ear in the world, <laughs> producing a grandson who was, you know, phenomenally gifted you know, with perfect pitch and all kinds of other intellectual and musical capacities. But the, the most of the people were orchestral players that we got. We auditioned them all between the ages of about 17, or maybe we had one or two 15 and 16-year-old people, between the ages of 17, roughly, and 25 from Syria, from Egypt, from Lebanon, from Jordan, from Palestine, both Israeli Palestinians and the West Bank, uh, you know, the occupied West Bank, that um, Palestine. Uh, one student from Tunisia, one from Iraq, and then, of course, a bunch of Israelis. And we brought them together in Weimar after auditioning them all, and th- there was, it was done completely cold, there was no First of all, we decided there would be no politics, in the sense it's, this was not a political dialogue. We weren't there to sign a peace, a peace treaty or to further the peace process, which I've been very critical of, uh, and so had he. And the idea was to bring them together to perform, basically, and to perform under the best possible auspices. I mean, Bahnborn is a m- magnificent conductor, and these kids, all of whom were professional musicians playing in the conservatories or in the symphony orchestras, let's say of Cairo and Damascus and so on, came together for the first time and he rehearsed them. It was a riveting moment in Beethoven's Seventh Symphony for a period of about two weeks, eight or nine hours a day, uh, measure by measure, without in front of him a score, uh, helping each musician in in each of the instruments, whether it was a cello or there was a a young, rather gifted, but unexperienced Egyptian tympanist And Daniel would rush over and show him how to, since the timpanum plays such an important role in the Seventh Symphony. And this would go on all day. There would be chamber music. I would do some chamber music. I remember once playing something with yo-yo mods, rather intimidating. My hands were shaking. <laughs> and, then, and then in the evening, we would get them all together and we'd have discussions. And that was my main role, to, to have discussions and talk about music in the wider setting. Uh, of, the, uh, of their lives as Arabs, as Israelis, as Syrians, and so on. And what really happened was quite extraordinary. They became members of an orchestra, first of all. Of course, they never lost their, their sense of identity as Arabs or Syrians. And, and, but above all, all of us found out about the other. I mean, in, in the most extraordinary way. There was, politics was, of course, occasionally discussed. And one rather memorable uh, experience was taking them all, and, uh, late in the in the in the three weeks we were there to to visit Buchenwald, which is one of the worst camps and very close, to, uh, deliberately built by the Nazis to be close to Weimar as you know a kind of symbol of you know the German the, the German paradox if you want, uh, and it was a shattering experience for everybody, uh, the Arabs as well as the as well as the Israelis, but the net result was that they developed something that. Uh, sort of uh, was an overarching identity as musicians uh, who didn't, as I say, lose their identity, but were able to function together in a, in a different way. And I think the point—we never stated it explicitly—was to try to provide alternative models for human community that are not always based upon interest in the narrow sense, nor upon identity, nor upon conflict and op- opposition. But rather through certain kinds of expressions, uh, certain kind of humanistic, and longer periods—not, you know, well, you're just an Arab, or I, you know, or you're this, that—the other thing, you know, those labels that most people live under—and we've continued it. Uh, we did it t- two years in Weimar, then one year in Chicago, and now we did last year in Seville, and we're doing—we've been adopted by the Andalusian government, and there the resonance is very important because it's Andalusia, a place where Arabs and Jews and Christians lived together for a long time. Uh, and it's a continuing experiment, but the, the important thing for me is that the le- because of Daniel's commitment, the level uh, of musical performance is really fantastically high. By the end of the session, uh, these are kids who can play, I mean, they, they're a number of about 80 in the end. Uh, and they're, all, they're being auditioned even as we speak in Damascus and Cairo and so on. Not without all kinds of political problems, which you can discuss in a minute. But, uh, but the level they achieve by the end of the period is such that they can play conscious. They played at Lucerne last year, they played at Strasbourg for the European Parliament. And this year, as you know, they're going to play in the, at the Proms. Yes, we,
1: fingers crossed. That we fingers crossed, right. yeah.
0: The problems are, are really quite serious because um, Well, you know, there's there's been a war in Iraq, and here we get into the political versus the aesthetic. The war in Iraq suggests to most Arabs, and here I disagree, but I represent the Arab position as best I can, that most Arabs think that because the United States has fought what I consider to be an illegal and unjust war in Iraq, uh, and because Palestinians are so treated are treated so terribly and brutally by the Israelis, in which you know every one of their human rights has been violated. it therefore means that uh, Arabs cannot participate in um, anything to do with Israelis or with Americans I mean that the idea is that you withdraw from all that and i've always felt uh, different about that um, I think that uh, m- Activities that change each other. I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about specific results like, you know, agreeing to sign on a dotted line, but really the development of a, a wider notion of identity, to, to a, a, a larger network of interests and overlapping, um, overlapping concern. The focusing upon different non-coercive and non-belligerent models of human community based in the end upon interpretation, uh, which is what all of this is about. I mean, I don't think this, what Huntington calls a clash of civilizations, is anything at all like that. It's really a clash of identities, where people are trying to determine what their real identity, where the boundaries are, this sort of thing. Well, why not try, if in a limited way, uh, experiments with the arts, where the supremely nonverbal art, music, right, uh, the strangely silent art says very little about itself, uh, can be put to use as a kind of social place where there's, a, there's an actual locale in which something happens to transform people and leaves it up to everybody at the end to figure out what happened to him or her. I mean, you know, there's no collective statement at the end. We don't. The only thing we do is a concert at the end, right? And the idea then is that the change is sort of internal but it's cumulative and collective at the same time. And I think it's a, it's a unique opportunity because it's hewn out of the urgency and the, um, and the argumentativeness and the polemics of the world and the violence
1: of the world in which otherwise we live. You would, I imagine, in, in, in describing that, want to make an important distinction between um, a rather conventional idea, which is that the orchestra, in a sense, uh, is a family, Uh, who come together to bury their differences to make music, to, in fact, this particular orchestra, and maybe all groups of musicians, um, uh, confronting difference, otherness, as you put it, and learning um, to absorb and to take pleasure in being both part of and also identifying that otherness. So we must move away from the idea of the orchestra as some kind of sentimental family.
0: Well, I'll give you a very uh, concrete example of what happened on the first day of the first rehearsal of the Beethoven Seventh. Now, the Beethoven 7th is in A major. Um, There's a long introduction, and Daniel had them just play through it. uh, Sight reading basically. Uh, There was an extraordinary moment uh, when in the first uh, major cadence in the introduction, the whole orchestra comes to rest on A. And then there's a brief but but very eloquent uh, oboe phrase played by the solo oboe, who in this instance happened to be an Egyptian. And one of the most, in fact, the single most important moment thus far in the symphony, this this, this uh, eloquent phrase expressing a certain moment of rest, but also anticipation of what is to come, again, in A major. Well, I was sitting on the edge of my chair because I had no idea how we'd play it. And the tension must have been terrible because, of course, the Israelis came from a much more sophisticated background. I mean, there is you know, an open Uh, route between uh, Tel Aviv and New York and so and the foundations, and these, so they come from entirely different backgrounds, but he played it so beautifully that the Israeli students, I mean, I was very pleased to watch this, practically fell out of their chairs, that that Muhammad could play that way. And then we got into the whole question almost immediately after that of the question of identity. Now, here's a, a Muslim Egyptian playing a, a German piece with an Israeli uh, fellow musicians, an Israeli conductor, in, uh, in this quite extraordinary German city. He said, what do you make of it? Well, at first, it was a lot of fighting. And one of the first things that happened, uh, it's, it's important to mention, is that the students began to withdraw at night after the day's events were over into their own little groups. They would form groups, for example, to play Arabic music. And once during the discussions, an Israeli, uh, Albanian Israeli violinist put up his hand and said, listen, I want to complain about something because after we finish, and we usually finish at about 11.30 at night, uh, the Arab, half a dozen of the Arab kids get together and they jam together, they play Arabic music. And I tried to join them. But they said no, no, you can't. And so the, 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 the Arab, one of the Arab kids who was in charge of, or led that particular thing said, no, 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 we, we, we don't want him to come because Arabic music can only really be played by Arabs. So the guy said, but yeah, but I can play. I mean, I can play it. And the guy said, no, no, you have to have it in your blood. <laughs> so th- this is a tough one. How do you get out of it? So then we, we got into the question of what, what does that apply also to German yeah. music? You see, I mean. The- <laughs> And then isn't it really a matter of, you know, if if he can play the music, oh yes, he can play the music. Technically, he's very good, he can play the music, but it doesn't, it's it's not authentic. So, because you have to be an Arab to do it. Now, the the thing was solved about a day later. I'll never forget this scene as long as I live. The same Lebanese kid who was more Arab than anyone else in this context, at the end of a rehearsal was sort of hanging around to try to talk to Yo-Yo Ma, who, as you know, is not an Arab. Uh, uh, anyway, and so Yo-Yo had, had w- watched the whole discussion and so on, said to him, well, listen, uh, uh, Claude, he told him, he said, listen, I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to figure out Arabic music. And so, you know, building on what he had said the day before, Claude said, oh, it's impossible, you know, only an Arab. The, Tuning is difficult, and so on. He, said, he said, Show me, let me try. And Yo Yo, who's such an extraordinary musician, it took him about three minutes. He retuned his cello, and the two of them were jamming away. And of course, the point was made I mean, if you can do it, you can do it. And so, we never ever came back to that question again as to who has the right to play what music in what context.
1: But well, that little anecdote raises. A wonderful bouquet of questions. Let me just pick out one or two to ask you. I mean the first one, of course, is that the argument that only uh, a particular group, be it Arabs, be it Spaniards, be it French, but above all be it Germans, can actually play their own music, is of course an argument that takes us to the heart of German fascism, to Nazism, and to an extremely difficult, problematic area about national identity and music, doesn't it, Brian? But
0: it's not only about music, it's about national identity in all kinds of ways. That is to say, only if you belong to the given group can you therefore be entitled to do X and Y and Z. So um, that, the the workshop was a lesson in going beyond that. And of course, of course, there are differences. There must be differences between people. We're not all just carbon copies of the other. We're not homogeneous in any way. And there is a great deal of diversity within groups that consider themselves to be uh, homogenous. Um, but what, is, what was terribly important was some idea of difference and equality at the same time. In other words, uh, and, th- and with that, it, particularly in music, but in other fields as well, competence. I mean, if you can do it, uh, then you know, your identity doesn't really matter. But in a certain sense, you keep your identity at the same time. So there may be, let us say, an Arab way of playing Beethoven or an, a, a Chinese way of playing Arabic music. Uh, That doesn't, you know, it doesn't do away entirely with the idea of of identity, but it doesn't give a a kind of unchallengeable privilege to one identity over the other. That's the problem, I think, that uh, at least I was intellectually trying to, to,
1: to get across. The other issue there is the notion of authenticity. And, and this is a, a concept that now embraces an extraordinary amount of music making all the way from whether you play with gut strings and unvalved horns and, and, and unmuffled un, un, un um temp sticks and through to a belief somehow we can magically um, summon up bark as it might have been to bark um, within this idea of of, of the authentic is always a sense of going backwards i think you'd want to argue that's entirely wrong the authentic is not about it. The past.
0: Yes, I think so. I mean, I think it's Eric Leinsdorf who once said, um, which could be applied to today's fundamentalists, I mean, uh, religious fundamentalists, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Hindu or any of the others, he said to people who wanted in their music making to be authentic and play in the 18th century manner, well, he said, "Do you have 18th- century ears?" And the, of course the answer is no. I mean, you know we have 20th century or 21st century ears, and our circumstances are completely changed. So I think the question of authenticity is a, is a kind of misleading one, because it, it, it allows you to rush you know, back into some notion of the past as a, as a better place, leaving others to confront the, the questions of the present, which are, are, I think, the important ones. How does? Bach work in the 21st century? That's the real question. Not how must he be played according to 18th century canons, you know, which can't be reproduced, but rather what is, you know, taking very seriously the notion that Bach is an 18th century composer, or a 17th century composer, um, with a particular aesthetic, how can that be understood in, in the 20th century. Uh, that, and that is, the, it's a question of coming forward rather than going, of going backwards.
1: So, so the authentic is always defined by the present tense?
0: I, I think absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, orchestras or musicians who try to play like other musicians uh, generally fail that test. I think the important thing for younger people, I mean, as a teacher, this is always what I try to, to, uh, to impart to my students. I'm not interested in disciples. Uh, and Barenboim, as a teacher or, or as a you know, pianist who, who gives master classes, not interested in having students play like him. I mean, the world, for example, today is full of young pianists who want to play Bach like Glenn Gould did, and they end up by... or a generation ago, it was people who wanted to play like Horowitz. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to, to train students to discover a way for themselves, I mean, and I feel that as a teacher of reading, so that they can read the works with, with, with a genuine sort of attention, very, very careful attention to what is in the words, but within a context that is much wider than the original work, if it's from the past, uh, had. So that you could can, can take a work by Bach that was written, let's say, in a church for an audience that understood uh, the laws of the rules of counterpoint, let's say, and understood the structure of a fugue, and transform it into the 20th century, into a different kind of experience, which is not about, uh, which is not about simply, you know, fulfilling the rules of fugue and, and doing it brilliantly, but rather uh, giving ideas of counterpoint as having to do with notions of coexistence, of uh, simultaneous lines, of, uh, of of counterpoint, counterpuntal uh, coexistence. I mean, I think that's the main idea, and, you know, music is as, as, good, a, as good an example as, as, as one has for that kind of thing.
1: What you've done there is something that you do throughout the conversations with Barenboim, is to incorporate music within um, a discussion, a discourse that might just as well as you've just suggested, be about a literary text, it might be about the visual arts. In other words, you've brought music in, it seems to me, from a very strange, rather isolated cultural position, yes. which most of us now seem to regard it. Music, even if we care about it, and even if we play it, is something out there. Yes. Books, literature, the visual arts are here. Right. How do you explain this strange, alienated position that music occupies? Well, I think part of it is education.
0: I mean, and I think that music has, been, has become so specialized, partly because, you know. Um, Music used to be a function of the Western middle-class home, where people learnt instruments and could play together, whether 4 arrangements of symphonies. This is the before the age of mass reproduction of music through records and uh, television and so on and so forth. So there was education early on. There was a competence in an instrument, and music was thought of as part of the curriculum. It, well, it simply dropped away. It's uh, it's uh, thought of as being really outside, too difficult. Too labor-intensive, and the specialization uh, is not worth the effort. It isn't seen as part of the humanities. I think that's the main thing, and the result is uh, performers who are so exaggerated and so virtuosic in their in their in their manner that they are things to look at uh, rather than to uh, examples to emulate and to try so, to play so like them.
1: So a spectacle. I and mean, This yeah. is crucial 20th century spectacle now dominates. Exactly. Spectacle.
0: And an alienating spectacle of that, Uh, and so you have uh, you have really uh, well. It's the same thing. It has the same effect as the media in general. Yeah, you know what is an intense experience, whether of killing or suffering or aesthetic exaltation, is always done at a remove, there's a kind of distance. Uh, it's, It's alienated also in the sense that it's it's thought of as the province of the expert and is always framed in some way. The idea is to take it out of the frame. Uh, and for example, the Weimar civil experience is very much that, where politics and music each keeps the integrity, keeps its integrity, but they're mixed together and, 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 and seen really in totally different ways because of the juxtapositions, because of the parallels, and because of the paradoxes that emerge.
1: I was recently listening to Mravinsky conduct Shostakovich Five. And, and if you know the recording, the, the classic melodia recording, you'll know that it's unmistakable and it's quite unlike anything else. It has a kind of intensity, um, intellectually and politically, I think, uh, unlike any other recording of Shostakovich Five. And as next an exercise, I went and listened to three others. No names, no pack drills. Uh, what occurred to me was the other three all sounded roughly the same. Um, not in terms of what the conductors did, but the way in which the orchestra were allowed to play by the conductor. And and my simple conclusion was that, in a way, music, as much as other cultural artifacts, has become a victim of globalization. Is that too simple, or do you think that... No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, there's no question that uh, orchestras
0: and maestros imitate each other. And there is thought to be a going picture in the audience's mind or I, as it sits in front of a stage, of what an orchestra should sound. I mean, there's a certain amount of perfection, there's a, there's a certain sheen. Uh, and and the, the whole process of music-making is concealed from the audience. And one of the things that we try to do, I mean, we've taken this very much into account also in, in Seville, Weimar first, now Seville, is to open music-making to, uh, you know, to the world. Uh, first by the, the whole process, which is part of what we do, of auditions, that we go as we are this week, or next week, I guess, uh, to places like Damascus, to audition kids who have, you know, who have very little, I mean, they're very, very good. I, I went to the D- Damascus Conservatory and to Damascus itself for the first time about a month ago. I was, I was astonished, you know, we we're so brainwashed into thinking that countries like Syria are, you know, terrible Ba'ath states etc. and you walk in, and f- the first thing that struck me is it's like walking into Juilliard. The kids are walking around, you know, there's a cellist practicing in the corridor, they have a cafeteria um, that everybody goes to, wonderful instruments, they have a, a tremendous number of, of excellent r- uh, Russian teachers. So the level is very, very high, but what they're being auditioned for uh, is, of course, to come and play in an orchestra led by somebody who they know by name, have no idea, but they know he's an Israeli, uh, and in a place they've never been to. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it, instead of being alienating, it in, totally involves them, but it also destabilizes them. And the result is a quite unique sound that is unlike any, I mean, you, you can't say, well, that it sounds a little bit like the Berlin Philharmonic, or no, 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 it sounds like... Uh, like, the, like the London uh, Symphony Orchestra, it does it. There's a unique urgency to it, which is the background, which is partly the, from the background of these kids. Uh, and us, you know, for whom this whole experiment is uh, not only exciting, but is challenging and to a certain degree threatening, uh, you know, because we're, we're, being, we're being put through things that have a certain amount of risk in them. Uh, some of the kids have problems when they return, uh, some, of, some of the others are not allowed to go. Uh, so it's a political fight to try to win a space for experience that isn't, isn't easily present in a polarized situation like that of the Middle East today.
1: Y- you, in a sense, you, you suggest a model there in which the politicians take an absolute view. Let's yeah. yes. take, for example, Syria, where you've just been to, in which they say no. Or yeah under certain circumstances, possibly. Yes. But there's a kind of absolutist view. Is that actually true of, 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 of political groups through, through the region?
0: I think, I think it's true of political groups everywhere. I mean, we saw in the previous discussion you know, that we're going to wage war in Iraq because of the weapons of mass destruction, which never turned up. I mean, so, uh, and clearly that's not the reason. Had Iraq been the world's largest exporter of oranges, there would have been no war in Iraq, no matter how bad the regime was, Uh, you know. So it it seems to me the art of what politicians, what politicians do is use statements that in the end have very little relationship to reality. And it's up to people like us, intellectuals and musicians and thinkers and performers and and interpreters to do the opposite, to try and bring reality uh, and art closer to each other in, in a way that would include breaking down barriers and saying, well now, is it really true that the fact that this Syrian musician and this Israeli boy or this Egyptian musician and this Israeli woman, when they play together, are they really uh, trying to make sort of separate political deals. Well, obviously not, I mean it's ridiculous. And that's what we have to expose is the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of politics and political discourse, which is so much the, 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 the trademark of, of public discussion today. And I think it can be done in these somewhat subversive and unusual ways. Now,
1: the, the subversion there is a very obvious and exciting political subversion. Um, but I wonder also, in a sense, let's go back to the original meeting of these musicians in Weimar, playing Beethoven the Seven one of the one of the most Moving chapters in, in, the, in this new book is about Beethoven, and it restores to Beethoven, it seems to me one thing that we've lost, which is here is an intensely political composer. Not political just in the sense so but in the early part of his career he's an enormous admirer of France and the revolution. but the very structure of Napoleon yes, yes, but the very structure of this music is political. Yes.:
0: Absolutely. And we, we, we try very much in the yeah. discussions that we have that I lead, but Daniel, of course. Uh, participates in, to discuss that. That is to say, to discuss politics as not just the arena of labels, of camps, of this versus that, but of certain processes of working out. I mean, the way, for example, he takes a hold of a phrase, Beethoven, takes hold of a phrase, and deliberately begins to transform it through a certain process of development, which is relentlessly pursued to some conclusion that is unanticipated before and comes as quite a surprise, although a satisfying surprise, and that this process of working out, which resembles, I think, Freudian working through. I mean, you have, you have a certain experience that music can express, but it can't be expressed simultaneously. You have to be able to use a longer um, calendar than that of just you know, one-word phrases. You know, I'm for it, I'm against it and this will to develop, which is so much, in in Beethoven's case, tied to the individuality of the bourgeoisie, right? but is always looking for parallel um, circumstances, so that it's not alone. I mean, that's what the genius of Beethoven lies in, I think, is this immense individual power forcing the material into a development that gradually acquires a greater and greater circumference, more and more uh, more and more area to cover, that it ceases to be simply an individual piece of work. That's why the Ninth Symphony was fought over by so many people. I mean, the Nazis thought of it as their you know, music. Well, Wagner, of course, presents similar problems. But, I mean, it's also the music of brotherhood. Uh, and, there is this underlying, as you said, this underlying political caste which has to do with basically with human labor, with human self-fashioning, with human beings making their own world, which is a terribly important concept. It's not made by some outside force, but it's done by people, uh, which is the great insight of Vico, You know that human beings make their own history and they make their own art. And so the process of making in all of its detail and complexity and contradiction is what's at the core.
1: And, and the, 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 the conflict that Beethoven is able to wrest out of sonata form, in a sense, becomes precisely that form, you know, lent, is lent and bent to precisely that sense exactly. of, of the idea of and work and labor. Work and labor, which is never completed.
0: I mean, if, if it was, he would do one sonata, and that's the end of it. But, I mean, that's why one, one of the most extraordinary things about Beethoven, perhaps more than any other composer, is the coming back to works, to redo them. I mean, take Fidelio, which is his only opera, but he rewrote it at least three times and practically to his dying day was thinking of redoing it again. I mean, there's a sense in which the final imperfection is so, is so much a, uh, an aspect of the structure of the work. And I, and I think the same thing is true in, in, in political and cultural disputes. I mean, what matters most to me is not, in the end, to produce an answer to just say, well, here it is, but rather to, because, I mean, democracy isn't something that you can deposit in front of somebody the way the Bush administration, rather stupidly, has said that we're bringing democracy to Iraq as if democracy was a commodity. It's not. What what, what one has to understand is that these are things that never finish. These are processes that have to be engaged in. And they can, in the end, only be engaged in by the people most involved, not by some outside authority. And the greatness of a musician like like Baron Boyman, what I try to do as a teacher, is not to become, not to become the coercive authority, but really to, to be a participant in this making process.
1: I think we should invite the audience, if they would like to ask questions. Um, I should apologize for the fact that I'm blind as a bat. Uh, so, you have to put your hand up very high and wave it. Uh, and there are microphones, as you can see, on either side. So, you in the middle have the very first question. If you can pass the microphone along to the gentleman in the middle. Hello. Um, Professor Saeed, thank you for coming. And I'd like to, um, as an Arab, thank you for uh, having been, for so many years, such an articulate and such a, a strong defender of the Palestinian cause. Um, um, I think you are in favor of the binational secular state as a solution in the long term. Can you update us on your views in terms of what happened in the last two, three years? Because I know that was your position about three years ago. Are you still hopeful in terms of, because obviously many people well, are skeptical.
0: I think uh, because my work uh, in politics has been associated now quite a lot with Boy. I, I think, I, I, and you know, Part of this friendship and active partnership in music and, and thought has influenced both of us. One of the things that I've, that one of the conclusions to which I've come, which I think is, he agrees with, is that the idea of simple partition is, just doesn't work. Uh, you know, the, the two peoples involved, Palestinians and Israelis, even though their involvement is very, very, very much an unequal one. I mean, Palestinians are infinitely weaker than Israelis at present and enjoy, well enjoy isn't the right word obviously, but um, suffer terrible conditions. Um, The idea of pulling them apart in a land that uh, is very small and where they are completely uh, tied to each other is not practical. Um, it's It's as crazy as the idea of building a wall is the latest Sharon uh, project I would say, to separate Palestinians from Israelis by building a wall at the same time that Israelis are coming constantly onto Palestinian territory to build more settlements. There are now 400,000 settlers on Palestinian territories and a population of roughly 3 million Palestinians. So the idea that they – and a million Palestinians inside Israel who are roughly 20 percent of the population. So I think the following things seem to – to, to flow from this set of facts. One, military occupation and settlement really has to end. Uh, and, and this is one of the problems with the roadmap, it's one of the problems with, uh, with the Israeli regime, it's, with, it's true of the Palestinian regime. That, that, that the, that unless that notion is put in place that military occupation will end and the people will be liberated, Palestinians will be liberated from that, uh, we're not going to get a settlement. That's number one. Number two, I also think that more important than two states, which seems to be the going concern today, is what are the relationships between the states. I mean, if Sharon is perfectly happy to have a a Palestinian state, you know, on 30 percent of the West, 40 percent of the West Bank, with no borders with any Arab country, only Israel, controlling the air, controlling the water, controlling the exits and the entrances. I mean, that's not. That's not what's interesting, what's important. I think what's more important is equality between Palestinians and Israelis. And third, I think in the end, there has to be a, con- a common concept of self determination for both peoples in one land. Now, I'm not enough of a political scientist to say that it should take the form of this thing or another thing, whether it's a secular binational or a religious binational state. I mean, mostly Muslim, Christian, and and Jewish, or you know, a, a tri-national state. Uh, all of these are, are 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 things to be worked out in the future. But the principles seem to me to be not more partition, not more separation, not more inequality, and not more uh, uh, you know coercion and domination. Uh, and and if I think I think one has to think in terms that we've tried to use in our musical model. That is to say, that people can live together. Uh, exercise self-determination I mean uh, 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 if you take this the the analogy from the orchestra a violin is not an oboe an oboe is not a double bass and a double bass is not a timpano so you you have the coexistence of of diverse communities uh, and what's needed is a way of thinking that recognizes that and doesn't try to impose the notion of a superior claim on on the other I think that's that's terribly important (laughs)
1: would it be fair to say that um, Israel and its friends in America, by which I mean uh, government advisors, academics, the media, newspapers and so forth, are using the might of America for for their own very narrow purposes with no regard at all to the rest of the world?
0: Well, yes, I think that's generally true. <laughs> of course, and to think otherwise, as some of our panelists earlier today, here today pretended, I don't know, I couldn't tell whether it was naivete or contempt for the audience. Uh, but that's the way states behave. Uh, that's the way uh, interest groups behave. Uh, and uh, you know, we're talking about interest groups here. On the other hand, I do want to say about America, and about the Middle East. I think it's wrong to accept huge generalizing labels. Um, every situation that seems to be totally dominated by one group or one idea or one identity is it always allows for alternatives. The other America, which is the America that brought out the thousands people by the millions to oppose the war before the war began. The people who still oppose the war. The young people, including Rachel Corey, who go to Palestine in solidarity. The kids who want to go and p- join our orchestra. The, the people who are interested in experiments such as the one we're doing. Uh, the, the, the Israelis uh, who have taken unpopular positions like like Barenboim, like others. That's where I think one has to concentrate and, and see the world through their eyes, through their struggle. But to, to say, in the end, you know, this is, well, America is for democracy, or America is this, that, and the other thing is, is I, I think, hopelessly inert. It's a dynamic process in which, for the moment, these interests, in a very un-, or we could even say anti-democratic way, have forced the country manipulated public opinion. The polls, I think, to, a, to, a, to the last one, are entirely misleading of the mood of the country. I don't think Bush enjoys the support. I don't think most people in the country think that it was a war to liberate Iraq. That is the most laughable notion I've ever heard in my life. I mean, Iraq is in a state of chaos now. What the Iraqi people went through is simply unacceptable as a method of bringing liberation to anyone. You cannot ask people to go through 13 years of debilitating sanction, virtually amounting to genocide, then a bombing campaign, unparalleled in history, and then they are told that they are being liberated when they have no food, no water, no electricity. And and more important, and more important, the plans, the plans of the United States, I'm not talking about all the American people, I'm talking about this particular government and its interests, for the future of Iraq, Just look at the exiles they brought back, a man, Shalabi, who is known as a bank, I mean, a man wanted for bank embezzlement and fraud in Jordan, plus a whole bunch of other people who are known to be corrupt, and above all, who have no constituency whatever inside Iraq. These are representative of of democracy? Obviously not. And the fact that there's going to be a military American presence in the country for a long time, that the oil industry is going to be dominated by the United States and Britain. Well, the United States, Britain trying maybe to get a couple of uh, licks here and there. But I mean, all of that adds up to a terrible picture, which is disputed by groups like this who who know better. Uh, Why they put up with a kind of sophistry and and absolute uh, very clever formulations, of course, that we, some of which we heard earlier today. Uh, but not many people are fooled, I think, in the long run. And I, 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 what I want to stress is the dynamism of the situation and the constant searching for alternatives that are better than this and that, that don't involve the loss of the colossal loss of life and the waste of life that has taken away so much energy and so much uh, and
1: so much treasure. Another question? Yes, you've been waiting there. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Good evening. Um, I just want to go back to your earlier point about uh, a mixed state as opposed to a uh, two-state solution. How can that be possible when you have zealots on the Israeli right? When you have what? When you have zealots on the Israeli right whose deed of covenant for the land, not only Palestine, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, but also Syria, Iraq, Iran, is found in the Old Testament. It's just impossible.
0: I come back to the idea uh, of secularism. My, 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 the principle of my struggle has always been the notion that human beings make their own history. And while it's true that one of the most dire forces that one is up against is religious um, intolerance of the most vicious kind, it does seem to me, I mean, I, it's not much of an offer, but it does seem to me that education and patient re-education of people, through whatever means are available, is the only hope. And I think whether we're talking about uh, Muslim zealots or Jewish zealots or the vast number of American fundamentalists in the South that are, you know, really Bush's constituency, these people, I think, uh, have to be opposed, of course. But it's not just a matter of saying, "Well, you're wrong," etc., etc. But to Propose a different way of thinking. To propose a different kind of education, of which I think music and the learning of languages and other cultures is is fantastically important. One of the one of the worst aspects, most tragic aspects of the American experience in the Middle East has been the tremendous ignorance on the part of most Americans of what exists in the world out there, and allows the growth. And the same is true of Israelis as and of Arabs who think that all Israelis are, you know, one thing or the other. They're, you know, sort of evil geniuses and so on and so forth. The fact is that none of these societies are homogenous and unified, despite what the Orientalists tell us, you know, that the Islamic world is this and the Americans are that. I mean, that kind of thinking has to be deconstructed. It has to be dismantled. It has to be engaged with. The way one engages with a piece of music, you have to take it apart and figure out what makes it work. And you realize that there are many more generous possibilities in a society. There's a great deal of idealism. People are still moved. A word that didn't come up in the discussion that preceded us here. People are still moved by principles of justice. They are moved by feelings of injustice and are willing to sacrifice for that. And I think. I think those are the ways to confront those issues, not the conventional means, especially now as the world is so small and that the internet cyberspace offers so many new opportunities for that kind of engagement.
1: Thank you, Ed. I'm slightly loath to change the theme, but a music question, if I may. I noticed your um, orchestra was brought together to play Beethoven. Would then playing Wagner been a step too far? And did you not miss an opportunity to heal a bit of music's past in the opportunity? Uh,
0: that's a very, very good c- question. Um, certainly, Wagner was very much a subject of discussion. Uh, and, um, you know, Barenbaum's own experiences with Wagner, in, in which, in a sense, I participated, because we had a couple of public discussions, and then I wrote about Wagner in Israel and Wag- and Baronborn is playing it. I wrote about it in the Arabic press, where the whole question of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and all that, you know, there's a completely different view of it. I mean, I, I can't possibly w- reproduce it for you here. Uh, is is uh, I, I think is worth engaging with. Um, I, th- I think it's it's probably the case that in the next year or so, uh, as the competence and and and. Or, or, Sort of organic community of the orchestra increases over time. We will take on Wagner. I mean, it seems to be an absolutely inevitable step. Uh, but you know, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of resistance for, for obvious reasons. But uh, I'm happy to report that um, most people are willing to risk the experience. Uh, and uh, it was it was very very. I just go back now to something I mentioned earlier. It was very difficult. For the Jewish kids and for the Arab kids to visit Buchenwald for completely different reasons, you know, Uh, you know, the the Jewish kids it was was horrible, but for the Arab kids they were mystified as to what this had to do with them, Uh, and that was the problem they had to face, and to be able to talk about it to Jews and to say, yes, we acknowledge what happened to you. But, I mean, it, we were not responsible, and why were Palestinians made to pay the price of this? I mean, that seems to me the moral question that was raised as a result. And we had a huge discussion which had afterwards which had the Israeli kids asking Barenboim how, given the experience of what we saw that afternoon, he could bear to live in Germany. And then Arab kids asking me how I could you know, managed to collaborate, as it were, with an Israeli, given what Israel had done to the Palestinians. But, you know, the, the important thing is to be able to discuss these things and, and not to just say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. But, and Wagner, I think, is as, as you suggest, well, I, I'm not really revealing anything, but it's the next step.
1: We've we time for one more question. You've had your hand up a long time. No, the gentleman there, to, no, at the back, sorry, one more question there. Yep, you? Great. Professor side you've um, spoken very eloquently about the um, way in which your musical workshop has encouraged subtlety, um, collaboration, and coexistence, which retains a sense of identity. But I wonder whether that complexity, that subtlety, has the power to cope on an artistic level, but more importantly on a political level, with an increasingly homogenized... Um, that, you know, the election in 2004 in the United States will not be fought subtly or on complex issues. And
0: Right. Well, one has... To, I, I get your point. It's a very good one. I think one has to be able to think of it as a continuum, you know, and not try to deal with questions such as... I mean, issues or, or, or moments such as the election of 2004 in the same way that one would look at, you know interpreting a score, a musical score. They're not the same thing, obviously. But I but I think common principles can apply. And the 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 the, the importance of, of a of the elections is one, that it involves very much the kind of thing that we expect of our orchestral musicians, of, of any musicians, is 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 citizenship or citizen the, the engagement of the citizen as you would with a piece of music. You don't play a piece of music as a whole. You play it note by note, which means that the process of citizenship involves what is, I think, beginning to develop in the country now, in America, namely the, the emergence of an opposition. It's not going to be an opposition that is formal in the sense that it comes from the Senate, because the Democratic Party has simply gone to sleep uh, but it has to develop through the various communities in the United States that resist the policy that has brought disaster upon the country, both economically and socially. So I think, yes, they are connected, and they are connected through active engagement and processes that change political results in the end. Uh, yeah, I think there's no, there's no doubt about that. But they are different in that they require different skills, different types of, uh, of actions. Uh, and different kinds of uh, d- different kinds of communities. But I think it's—I think you're absolutely right to ask the question of how one pertains to the other. Not in a straight line, not together, but in a continuum, moving from this general first general principle of of activity of action to the la- uh, the larger one of of changing the government, which is, I think, the only hope for the for for, for the Middle East as, as a start is to get rid of this uh, appalling uh, administration that we have.
1: Edward, I'd like to end what has been a remarkable hour with you with the last sentence from Parallels and Paradoxes, which seems to be both to embrace everything we've been talking about in its widest sense, but also, in a way, to be the starting point for the dialogue that we should take away from what we've said. You write, for me, as somebody who cares so deeply about music, a very important part of the practice of music is that music, in some profound way, is perhaps the final resistance to the acculturation and the commodification, commodification of everything. You'll be signing, I think, copies of yes. this and other books, but for now, thank you very much. Thank for you. Thank, thank you very much. Nice. Well,
0: it was really surprised.